True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The moments the cold metal prongs press against her skin, she knows that her worst fear has come true. From the moment she saw him, something in her told her to stay away. At first, she just thought he was being pushy. Real danger never crossed her mind. But now, as his hands close around her throat, she understands that her guts had known all along. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 99, The Murder of Erin van Rensburg. This episode is sponsored by CBS Justice. For more true crime this month, watch the premiere of Coastal Killers Season 4 on CBS Justice, Monday to Friday, from the 5th to the 16th of December. Brand new episodes look at the sinister undercurrents that swirl around Britain's quaint seafronts and expose the killers who hoped their crimes would be washed away by the tide. Don't miss Coastal Killers, Weeknights at 7pm on DSTV, Channel 170. A huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon and PayPal supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Alexandra C. Osborne, Michaela Coker, Ahmed Badat, Meg Dusa, Lexi King, Anandel Fandamava, Shafiq, Sonia Fari, and Almin Kutsia for your support on Patreon, as well as Andre Fari and Taryn Van Veik for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Patreons get an exclusive episode every month as well as access to ad-free versions of each week's episode. I also occasionally upload some bonus content, like my recent upload of the recording of my book launch at Brooklyn Mall, where I had the pleasure of being interviewed by Dr. Gerard Labaskachny. There are also currently 22 Patreon-exclusive episodes on the platform, so if you're keen to access those, head on over to Patreon and search True Crime South Africa, or click the link in the show notes. You also have the option of purchasing an annual subscription, which I think is a pretty good idea, as a Christmas gift for your best true crime friend or partner in crime. There are sometimes cases I cover that just seem to hit me differently than others. I can't explain exactly why, and it's often for a myriad of reasons. But today's case is one of those. It's certainly not that one case is more tragic than another. They're all horrific and sad. But sometimes I connect with the story differently, and it hits me right in the solar plexus. At one of my book launches, I was asked if I ever try to put myself in the victim's shoes when I'm researching and writing for the podcast. 
And my honest answer to that is I try to not do that as much as possible. Because then, well, you might not get very many episodes from me. I try not to really imagine what it must have felt like. The terror and the pain and the horror. Because I can't do that every week. But some victims don't give me that option. And as I said, I cannot explain it. Sometimes I'll start researching a case and I just know. Okay, this is going to be one where I cannot help but get sucked in. And I want to warn you that you might too. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Because as this victim's dad would say, this case represents a lot of what is wrong with South Africa, and really society as a whole, as it relates to gender-based violence. In researching this case, I used an episode of Heiskenuit Vader Levenstramas, as well as a chapter of Julian Janssen's new book, Stellenbosch, Murder Town. So let's get into episode 99. The murder of Aaron van Rensburg. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Aaron van Rensburg was born on the 27th of April 1989. She was, as her parents say, a lot lamaki, with there being several years difference in age between her and her older brother Byron and sister Neska. Her parents Helen and Errol raised their family in Mossel Bay, where they managed several campgrounds and caravan parks. I really liked the fact that Erin's family and friends were able to participate in the Heiskenoot Vader Levenstramas episode because they all gave such great background about her and really brought her to life in their words. Erin was an exceptionally intelligent girl, but she was also very friendly and well-liked at school. Her mom Helen says that one of the other school moms once remarked that Erin must be the most popular girl in school because she was at everyone's birthday parties, even the boys. Helen laughs when she talks about this and says Erin made everyone feel comfortable and happy and she would often be the only girl invited to a boy's birthday party and she just blended in and got along with everyone. Erin was very close to her family and her brother Byron was very protective of her but she was also a natural helper and Helen remembers fondly one occasion when Erin was 12 years old. She found her in the garden reading The Great Gatsby. She'd asked her what on earth she was doing, as that was a book for a much older person. Erin said that Byron had to write a test on the book, and she wanted to read it so she could help him study. One of Erin's friends from childhood remembers starting at the same school as Erin in the beginning of the school year after her family had moved to Mossel Bay. Erin was always one of those people picked to welcome newcomers to the school, and she and this young lady soon became firm friends. 
Erin's love for Japan and Japanese culture started when she was quite young. She was obsessed with everything Japanese, from cherry blossom trees to kimonos. And she'd even started to learn to speak Japanese, as she planned to visit the country as soon as she could. Erin was a talented sketch artist and enjoyed sketching anime characters. She drew an amazing self-portrait in anime style that honestly looks like a professional rendering. Everyone said that Erin was very witty, and her intelligence meant that she'd often come up with quips on the fly that would take most people a while to cotton onto. By the time Erin matriculated, she'd already decided she wanted to continue her studies at Stellenbosch University. Her brother Byron had been studying there for several years already, and her parents had rented a flat with two bedrooms with the specific intention that Erin would move into the second room when she started university. They felt that this would be a safer option for her, rather than having her living on her own. In 2008, this planning came to fruition when Erin started her degree in marketing at the University of Stellenbosch and moved in with her big brother. Although it wouldn't be long until Erin started to make her own friends at university with her bubbly personality, she did also socialize with her brother and his friends. Byron had been friends with one particular young man, Jacobus Eckstein, for about six years by the time Erin moved into the flat. Erin had met Eckstein on previous occasions. The first time was when she was in grade 11, and Eckstein had attended a braai she'd been at with her brother. The young man was socially awkward, but he and Byron got along well. They often played cards together at Byron's flat, and after Erin moved in, she would make them coffee and bake muffins for them while they played cards. Jacobus Eckstein was born and raised in Uppington in the Northern Cape. He came from a highly regarded family of doctors and other medical professionals, and his family were relatively wealthy in the region. It would later come to light that Jacobus had shown quite a few signs of obsessive-compulsive disorder from a young age. He was known to wash his hands up to 35 times a day. His family had laughed it off viewing him merely as a germaphobe. Although people who went to school with him would describe him as a loner, he really doesn't appear to have presented that differently from many young boys and men. Jacobus always excelled academically, but as well as he did in his schoolwork, he struggled just as significantly socially. He did have friends with similar interests, but as soon as he started to mature, it became clear that his social difficulties created major issues with the opposite sex. Jacobus Eckstein is not an unattractive man. He's slim, and there doesn't seem to be any reason why he shouldn't have been able to engage in a relationship. So his social anxieties must have been the difficulty here. Jacobus spent most of his free time working on computers and playing computer games, and became quite tech-savvy. He would often be the go-to guy for any of his friends who had computer issues. This often became Jacobus's social currency, and it would also play 
a major role in how he was able to manipulate circumstances later on. When Jacobus matriculated, he did so as the second-highest-scoring student in the entire province of the Northern Cape. As such, he was able to pretty much take his pick of universities he'd wanted to attend. He decided he'd wanted to follow a finance path rather than going into medicine like his parents, and he eventually decided that the University of Stellenbosch's program was the best suited. This was how he'd met Byron von Rendsburg. The two young men were on the same study path together and shared many classes. It's important to remember that we only have Jacobus Eckstein's version of the interactions between him and Aaron, and I'm hesitant to accept those as truth. Aaron's friends and family would have a very different version of how they'd interacted, and as I explain what happened over the following months, I'll tell you whose version is whose, and you can decide for yourself what you believe. In August 2008, there was a house party in Stellenbosch that Byron and Aaron attended. Jacobus Ekstien was there as well. He would later claim that at the party, he and Aaron had kissed, and that Aaron had made a sexual advance toward him, which he'd rebuffed. No one else in Aaron's life ever knew anything about this alleged encounter. She was a young woman with a large group of female friends. If she had kissed him or thought about him in that way that night, it's very likely she would have told one of her friends about what had happened. But she didn't. Whether this really happened or not is pretty much beside the point, because even if Aaron had just innocently flirted with him, or perhaps even just spoken to him kindly, it seems that Ekstien was always going to blow any form of interaction out of proportion. And that is exactly what he did. In the months that followed that party, Ekstien began to message Erin incessantly, and many of her initial responses, I think, speak to the way women in general often struggle to assert their own wishes and needs. So often society expects women to be sweet and kind and just go with the flow. Pushing back is expected to be done really carefully, and often, especially young women, will try to let unwanted attention from men down gently, rather than push back too hard. Erin was also a really kind person. She wouldn't have wanted to hurt anyone's feelings if she didn't have to. So perhaps in the early days of these message exchanges, she tried to find ways to put Ekstien off without being too forceful. This, unfortunately, only seemed to encourage Ekstien, and eventually the volume of his messages became more than Erin could handle. She started telling friends about his behaviour. She told her sister, too. It seems that she left it for some time before telling Byron that she was feeling uncomfortable, perhaps because she didn't want to put him in a difficult position considering Ekstien was his friend. Eventually, though, Erin couldn't take it any longer, 
and she told Exton outright that she was not interested in a relationship with him, and she wanted him to stop messaging her. That is when Exton's messages took a different tone. I do not know whether the police ever actually had access to any of these messages between the two, but after Aaron had told Exton to back off, his messages became extremely nasty. I don't know whether he ever threatened her in these messages. I doubt that he had done so outright, as Erin would likely have told her parents about obvious threats. She did block his number, though, and Exton was enraged. She then proceeded to tell her parents and brother that she didn't want Exton to be around her, and she found him to be creepy, and his behaviour toward her was inappropriate. Byron spoke to Exton and asked him to leave his sister alone, and although Exton agreed he would, it would later become clear that Erin putting her foot down did not make Exton back off. In fact, it would only make him more obsessed. The interesting and terrifying thing about Exton, though, is that he didn't continue to attempt to make contact with Erin. He didn't stalk her or harass her in the way we might expect. Instead, a switch seemed to flip in Exton's mind. He went from fantasizing about marrying Erin and her bearing his children to fantasizing about the revenge he would take on her. During the six-month period after Exton started messaging Erin, his academic performance had dropped significantly. He seemed to shift his entire focus to pursuing her. His parents were concerned, and when he told them that he couldn't concentrate, not elaborating on why, they suggested he see a psychiatrist and see if there was anything that could be treated. Exton would be diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, during this period, and he was prescribed the medication Concerta. Although he saw the psychiatrist another four times in that period, he did not take his medication consistently, and since he was not sharing his obsessive thoughts about Erin with the psychiatrist, his focus also did not improve and by the time he wrote part of the exam papers that would count toward him eventually either qualifying or not, he failed several subjects. Failure was not something Exton was used to, and he could not accept that he'd failed because he had simply not worked hard enough. He convinced himself that it was not his fault. It was someone's fault, though but he was an innocent victim in his mind. Although there would have been opportunity for rewrites of the subjects he'd failed, Jacobus Exton convinced himself that if he did not attain his degree that year, his life would quite literally be ruined. He envisioned not being able to get a job, and even as a result, never being able to find a wife. This catastrophic thinking started to completely overwhelm him, and he began to put a plan in place to rectify matters in the way he saw best. 
just before midnight on the 31st of May 2009, Byron let Erin know that Jokorbis would be coming to the flat the following day to work on his computer. He asked his sister to let him into the flat in the morning and allow him to access his laptop. Erin agreed. On the morning of the 1st of June 2009, Erin's friend Mark had asked if she could give him a lift to his exam venue. It was raining and he didn't want to walk if he didn't have to. Erin's parents had bought both her and Byron runabout cars earlier in the year after Byron had been mugged at knife point while walking home. Their parents felt it would be safer if they had vehicles, and both would often give lifts to their friends to ensure that they were safe too. Erin got up that morning and dropped Mark off at his exam venue. She asked him if he would mind bringing her a loaf of bread when he finished his exam, and he said he would. She then drove back to her flat, and Jacobo Sextian arrived soon after. Erin let him in, and he went to Byron's laptop. Erin went back to her room. About midday, Erin's friend Mark finished his exam session. It had stopped raining, so he walked to a nearby store, purchased a loaf of bread, and then walked to Erin's flat. He knocked on the door, but there was no response. The front door and security gate were locked. The man knocked for some time and then tried calling Erin repeatedly on her cell phone. She didn't answer. He walked down to the parking lot and saw that her car was there. Wondering if maybe she'd just quickly walked somewhere, he waited. While waiting, he phoned several of their shared friends to ask if they'd seen her. No one had. Soon he became concerned that she wasn't even answering her phone and decided to phone Byron. Byron had been studying at a friend's house in Belleville that day, and he told Mark he hadn't spoken to his sister. He tried phoning her, and she didn't answer his calls either. Mark expressed his concern that maybe Erin had hurt herself and couldn't get to the door, and Byron agreed he would come back to the flat. At that time, Byron was still considering the possibility that Erin could have her earphones on and could be not hearing her phone or the door, or she may be in a deep sleep. Mark was concerned enough, though, that he thought they should at least check. Byron arrived at the flat just after 2pm. He opened up, and he and Mark walked through the flat. She was nowhere to be found. Her cell phone and house keys were gone, but her car keys, purse and other personal belongings she would usually have with her were still in the flat. Byron saw that his laptop was open and he remembered that Jacobus had been there that day to work on it. He called his friend, who didn't initially answer, but did answer on the second call. Unfortunately, Byron was unable to speak with Jacobus because the connection was poor. He hung up and texted him to ask whether he knew where Erin was. Jacobus said he'd left the flat before midday, and Erin had been sitting on the couch in her pyjamas. Byron was at a loss. He phoned friends that Mark hadn't, and finally, when he had no luck with any of those calls, he phoned his father. Errol van Rensburg clearly remembers receiving that first phone call from his son. 
He listened to what Byron had to say, and then instructed him to go to Erin's closet and look to see if all his shoes were there. There was no way Erin would leave the house barefoot, even if she was just going somewhere nearby. Byron opened her closet and told his dad with a growing sense of unease that all of her shoes were there. When Errol heard that the only other person who'd been at the flat that day was Jacobus Ekstian, he immediately felt his stomach clench. He, just like everyone else in Erin's life, was well aware that his daughter had not felt comfortable around Ekstian. Although on the occasions he'd met the young man he'd had no issue with him, he trusted his youngest daughter's instinct. And now... He had a very bad feeling. At 6pm that night, Byron had opened a missing persons report for his sister at Stellenbosch police station. Initially, police officers told Byron that Erin was probably out partying like many other university students and she would come back home before they could even get a case going. Byron disagreed and then told them about Erin's problems with Jakobus Ekstian and the fact that he'd been at the flat that day. He also said it didn't make any sense that Jacobus had said Erin was on the couch in her pyjamas when he'd left, because she'd gotten dressed in the morning to take Mark to his exam. Erin's dad had also mentioned that he seriously doubted Erin would wear her pyjamas when she knew that Jacobus was going to be around, because she was so uncomfortable around him. Police officers did seem to take notice when this information was relayed. They asked for Jacobus's number, and Byron gave it to them. He tried to phone Jacobus a few times himself since he'd spoken to him, and his phone had been off. When the police tried that night, he also did not answer. By the next morning, Erin had still not come home, and her family were terrified. The more they thought about it the more they believed that Jakobus Ekstian had to somehow be involved in her disappearance. Police had tried throughout the night to get in touch with Ekstian and failed. Byron and the police had also gone to Jakobus's flat in Stellenbosch, which he shared with his brother, and found that Jakobus was not there. His brother confirmed he hadn't seen Erin, and he had no idea where his brother was. Jakobus Ekstian eventually answered his cell phone on the morning of the 2nd. Police officers asked him if he knew where Erin was, and he repeated the story about last having seen her on the couch in her flat in her pyjamas. They asked Extian to come to the police station, and he agreed. After ending the call with police, Extian phoned his mother and told her that police were going to be charging him with the kidnapping of a missing Stellenbosch student. His mother, completely shocked at the sudden turn of events, tried to ask questions, but her son hung up the call. It's important to note that at this point, police hadn't mentioned anything about charging Extian. They simply said they wanted to talk with him. Inspector Johann Nell had been asked to conduct the interview with Jacobus Extian, the officer had significant experience with psychologically motivated crimes, and by this time, 
Police had to consider, looking at the history between Erin and Extian, that the young woman had come to some harm, and there was a good chance the young man knew something about it. Understanding how interviews of this nature were best conducted, when Extian arrived at the police station, Null told him he'd need to wait in the police cells, as they didn't have any interview rooms available at the time. The police cells were completely bare of any distractions. Null knew there would be nothing for Extian to occupy his time with in there, other than pondering the interview that was about to happen. He left Extian waiting for an hour, and at 1pm the interview commenced. Null, following his training, did not start with the crime at hand. Instead, he asked Extian questions about his life, childhood, and studies. Null always ensured he had a pack of cigarettes on the table with a lighter, as this was often good currency to gain an interviewee's favour when they became stressed out. The cigarette tactic worked well. Within minutes of starting the interview, Null noticed Extian eyeing the box. Null offered the young man one, and he gratefully accepted. Over the next few hours, questioning finally moved to the events of the day before and the whereabouts of Aaron van Rensburg. Extian maintained that he had no knowledge of the young woman's location or what had happened to her. When asked where he'd gone after leaving her flat the day before, Extian said he'd gone to the sand dunes at Elans Bay to clear his head. The young man claimed that this was why no one could get hold of him, because he had poor cell phone signal out there. This immediately piqued Null's interest, and he paused the interview to pass the information on to the rest of the team. Another detective on the case, Detective Sikhalar, assembled a small team and contacted police on the west coast near Elans Bay. They had Extian's description of where he'd been walking that day and figured they could get a jump on perhaps finding Aaron. Null would continue to feed information he may receive from the interview to the team as they drove. Elans Bay is two and a half hours' drive from Stellenbosch, and the team knew that they needed to get help from officers that knew the area. As they drove, they arranged for two traffic officers who worked the Elans Bay area daily to meet them. Extian had described the dunes he'd been walking on and said they were the highest in the area, and from the top of one there was a clear view of the sea. Of course, it made no sense that Extian would drive two and a half hours to walk on a beach, when there were many beaches within less than 30 minutes' drive of Stellenbosch, so officers were pretty sure that the area had some link to Aaron's disappearance. As Nell continued to question Extian, the young man had almost ploughed through an entire box of Nell's cigarettes. Always prepared, though, Nell produced another pack and opened it and put it down on the table. Extian insisted that he had no reason to hurt Erin, and the last time he'd seen her she was alive and well. Nell had noticed, when Extian had come in, that the young man had scratches all over his legs and his knees were red and slightly swollen. 
he decided to save this observation for later in the interview. Meanwhile, in Elant's Bay, Zichelar had taken directions from two traffic officers and pulled up to a large set of sand dunes just outside Elant's Bay. They immediately noticed what looked like tyre tracks on the side of the road near one dune. Illuminating the area with torches, Zichelar noticed drag marks up the dune. Along the path of those marks were broken twigs and branches, which indicated that someone had walked there. The officers climbed the dune and realised they were dealing with a huge area and it was very dark. They had already called for a canine officer to attend the scene to attempt to locate Erin if she was there, and they decided to wait a little while for the dog. Back at the police station, Inspector Johann Nell played two of his trump cards. He asked Extian how his legs and knees had become injured. Then he pushed a photograph of Erin in front of him. The man's eyes briefly flitted over the picture. As Extian's eyes met Nell's, the officer knew he was about to get what he'd come for. By the time the search dog arrived, the team at the dune had identified a disturbed piece of ground where they believed Erin could be buried. They awaited confirmation from the dog before starting to dig. Sure enough, the canine almost immediately led his handler to the patch of disturbed ground and poured the area, his sign that there was something or someone there. The team began to dig, and it wasn't long until they uncovered the body of Aaron van Rensburg. One of the forensics officers knelt down, and with a gloved hand, tenderly dusted sand off her forehead. For a moment, the gathering was silent. Sikala knew he would now have to make a call to Aaron's dad. Before they headed out, he'd warned the man that they believed they would find Aaron in the dunes. Errol van Rensburg says that he knew at that moment that they were not looking for a living Aaron anymore. It was now a body recovery. He had called his older daughter, Aaron's sister, Neska, and told her that at this point they should prepare themselves for the worst. Almost at the same time that Erin's body was being uncovered, Inspector Johann Nell made contact to say he had a confession. Jakobus Ekstein had admitted to killing Erin and agreed to point out where he'd buried her. Zikalar told Nell that they'd found Erin and he could bring Ekstein out to the site. They weren't going to leave Erin there for another moment on her own. So even though it was dark... Most of the officers had been up for hours. They waited for Extian to arrive. While they did, Zikalar made the phone call he was dreading. Erin's family was informed that all hope was gone. She was dead. When Extian arrived at the dunes with an officer not related to the case, the other officers cleared the scene initially 
not wanting to be accused of having swayed Extien's pointing out. The young man made his way up the dune, chatting amiably with the officer accompanying him about rugby. He quickly identified the place where he'd buried Aaron, and the rest of the team re-entered the scene to begin the recovery process. Extien continued his conversation about rugby with the officer, as Erin's body was slowly uncovered. When she was fully visible, Zikala interrupted Extian, asking, Is this Erin van Rensburg? Extian briefly paused his conversation, glanced over and said, Yeah, that's her. And then continued to put his viewpoints about locks and forwards to his captive audience. Please be warned that the following description is difficult to listen to. Erin van Rensburg was found hogtied in a fetal position in her sandy grave. She was wearing a pink t-shirt and a purple bra. She was naked from the waist down. Erin had sustained 34 wounds to her face, back, neck and arms. These seemed to have been a combination of blunt force trauma wounds and wounds from her having been strangled and or suffocated. A sock had been placed inside Erin's mouth and duct tape had been placed over it. She had been sexually assaulted. Erin's cause of death would be determined to be a combination of strangulation and suffocation. The grave in which Erin had been placed was enormous, and it was clear that Eckstein had taken a long time preparing the area. Cell phone records would later confirm that he'd spent five hours in the same area of Elans Bay on the day of the murder. Eckstein had been placed under arrest after his admissions at the police station, and by the time dawn broke the next day, a new world awaited those who'd loved Erin. In that new world, Erin was no longer alive. And also in that new world, no one could be trusted. Byron found himself in a world in which, for six years, he'd been friends with the man who would eventually take his little sister's life. Everyone suddenly realised just how important Erin's feelings of being uncomfortable around Eckstein had been. It wasn't that people hadn't taken her seriously. Certainly her parents and brother had supported her and limited Extian's access to her. It was just no one had realized that it could have been this serious. No one in their wildest dreams had believed Extian was capable of taking it this far. I'm pretty sure not even Erin thought that Extian was a physical threat to her. Not consciously, at least. But I do believe, and take from this what you will, that Erin's body knew. Her subconscious knew. Those intense feelings she called feeling uncomfortable were warning signs from an instinct that had kicked in. This man is not safe. She may have rationalized it as Extian just being creepy and pushy, 
But when you strip away the rationalization, her base instincts were telling her to get as far away from that man as she could. Several items were seized from both Extian's flat and Erin and Byron's flat that became evidence in this case. In his flat, police found a taser gun, tape that matched what had been found on Erin's face, and a used condom. His vehicle was seized and fibres and hair from the vehicle were sent for processing. In Erin and Byron's flat, police found blood on several items in Byron's room and in the bathroom. In his confession, Jakobus Ekstern detailed a horrifying tale of his crimes against Erin. Ekstern revealed that his crime had been significantly premeditated. Not just for days. He'd been planning to harm Erin for months. When he failed some of his subjects and Erin had blocked him, he said he'd come to the conclusion that she was to blame for his failure. She had ruined his life, at least in his mind, and in order to rebalance things, he had to kill her. Ekstian was a firm believer in universal symmetry. An action required an equal reaction in order to balance his life. In his mind, Erin had purposefully led him on and toyed with his emotions, and as a result, He'd been unfocused and had failed his exams. Ekstein revealed that he'd been stalking Byron, Erin, and her friend Mark for months. He'd wanted to map out their exact movements during the week and on weekends to develop a pattern so he could see where the weak points were for him to take advantage of. He knew he needed to find a gap to get Erin on her own in order to abduct her. At one point, he admitted, he'd considered drugging or even killing Byron in order to get access to Aaron. He'd put that option aside, though, because he felt that Byron hadn't done anything wrong, so killing him would create an imbalance in the symmetry again. Ekstian had a very specific idea of how he wanted to carry out his crime. He wanted Aaron to know why he was killing her. He wanted to abduct her and then keep her alive for some time so he could tell her how much she destroyed his life, and then he would kill her. Crucially, in this confession, he said that rape had always been part of his plan, although he would later change this and say the rape had been a spur-of-the-moment action. Ekstian had started purchasing items that he intended to use in the attack, his kill kit included two taser guns, rope, a sock, duct tape, and two refuse bags. He placed this into a kit bag, and then also purchased the largest suitcase he could find, which had wheels. Toward the end of May 2009, his desire to carry out the crime peaked, and on the 31st of May, Byron had mentioned in conversation that he was going to be studying in Belleville that week. Erin would be at the flat by herself. He checked her exam schedule and Mark's, 
and saw that on the 1st of June he was writing an exam and she wasn't. There would be a four- to five-hour window in which Mark would not be around or in contact with her, and she would be at home. This is when he came up with the idea to get entrance to the flat with the offer of working on Byron's laptop. He called Byron quite late the night before and arranged it, and Byron had in turn arranged with Erin to let Extian in. He explained that when he'd arrived at the flat, Erin had let him in and then gone to her bedroom and closed the door. He'd sat at Byron's computer for a few minutes and then called out to Erin, asking her if she could come help him to find something on Byron's computer. She came into the room and sat in the chair in front of the laptop. When her back was turned, Ixtian grabbed the taser from his bag and held it to Erin's throat. He'd seemed to think the taser would knock her out, but of course that's not what tasers do. They just briefly incapacitate the person. When he fired the taser, though, it didn't do anything except lightly spark, and Erin immediately started to shout at him. He wrestled her to the ground and began to choke her. Erin lost consciousness briefly, and he tried to tie her up. Extian would say that during this period at the flat, she'd come to on several occasions, and he choked her out again. On one occasion, she'd fought back so ferociously that he'd punched her in the stomach several times to window so that he could get her back under control. He eventually tied a piece of rope tightly around her neck so that she would remain unconscious. He then shoved the sock into her mouth and covered it with duct tape. Exian would admit that he had attempted to rape Erin at her flat. He'd watched porn in an attempt to arouse himself, but had been unable to complete the rape at that time. He then tried to put Erin into the large suitcase he'd brought with, but she didn't fit, so he put the refuse bags around her and carried her down to his car and put her in the boot. He then drove to the flat he shared with his brother. He knew his brother wouldn't be home during the day and he'd have a few hours to carry out his plan. At his flat, Ixtian completed his planned rape of Erin. In his confession, he refers to the rape as him exploring her sexually. He would later tell psychiatrists at Falkenberg that he'd been a virgin and decided that since he was going to kill Erin anyway, she deserved to pay even more for what she'd done. Initially, Extian claimed that Erin was unconscious when he raped her. In his Falkenberg interview, he said that she had already died. The timing of Erin's death would become a major point of discussion in this case. Extian claims that Erin was dead by the time he left his flat that day, and he'd been quite put out by her death because he hadn't had the opportunity to explain to her why he was killing her. There are sources, however, that state that there was reason to believe that Erin may have still been breathing when she was buried in the sand dune. There doesn't appear to be conclusive evidence to support this, though, and I can only hope this was not the case.
Ixtian claims that when he realised Erin was dead, he'd loaded her back into his car and set out for Erlans Bay. The distant location of the burial site had puzzled police in the early days, and Ixtian explained that his parents owned a holiday home in Langabarn, so he'd spent a lot of time on the west coast as a child and young adult. Those dunes were like a second home to him. CCTV footage showed that on the way to Erlans Bay, Ixtian had stopped at a petrol station and purchased two Red Bulls, an Energade and a chocolate bar. He explained he knew he would need a lot of energy to dig a grave big enough to hide Erin's body, and he would indeed spend five hours at the site digging and refilling. He said that Byron had called him while he was dragging Aaron's body up the dune that day, and that was why his signal was so spotty. He didn't want to arouse suspicion, so he texted back to say he had no idea where Aaron was. Although Jacobus Extian was arrested less than 48 hours after abducting, raping and murdering Aaron van Rensburg, his trial and the accompanying court proceedings would take years to complete. One of the main reasons for this delay was the required psychiatric assessment, which had to take place to ensure Extian was capable of acting in his own defence and that he was criminally responsible at the time of the crime. In March 2010, Extian's name was added to the list of defendants required to be assessed at Falkenberg Hospital. By May, he was number 55 on the list. By the 3rd of September 2010, the trial had to be postponed again. The report from Falkenberg would only finally come through in March 2011, a full year after Extian's name had been added to the list and almost two years after Erin was murdered. When Extian had been referred, the defence had presented a report from one of their psychologists which detailed several untreated disorders they believed Extian was living with. These included obsessive-compulsive disorder, pervasive development disorder, major depressive disorder, and Asperger's syndrome, which is now no longer a syndrome on its own and forms part of the autism spectrum. The Falkenberg assessments, however, would find no diagnosable psychiatric disorders that could or would have influenced Extian's actions at the time of the crime or mitigate his responsibility. He was therefore found fit to stand trial. One of the tests carried out during the assessments showed that Extian was obsessed with the concept of psychopaths, the reproductive system, and violence. Disturbingly, Extian told anyone who would listen, including psychiatrists assessing him, that he was not sorry he'd killed Erin. He insisted that she had got what she deserved, and he was only sorry he'd made mistakes during his crime, which had resulted in him being caught. He said that he could not identify any time during his life when he'd not been completely in control, and everything he did was calculated. Psychiatrists would loosely describe Extian as an intellectual genius 
and a social idiot. But they also found that he ranked extremely high on the checklist of psychopathic traits. Although it's shocking to hear a murderer say that he's not sorry he committed a crime and only sorry he got caught, I'll give it to Extian that at least he's being honest. So often we see fake crocodile tears and claims of remorse from these individuals, and we think to ourselves, you aren't sorry, you're just sorry you're in jail. But now, here is one offender who's at least willing to admit that's entirely true. Extian seemed quite perturbed that he hadn't achieved getting away with the crime, and said he'd previously discounted many different scenarios because his biggest fear was getting caught red-handed and having suicide. He insisted that Erin van Rensburg had deliberately ruined his life, and by killing her, he'd only ensured that she would never do it to another man. Extian agreed to plead guilty to all the charges against him. He said he did this because his mother was very ill with cancer and any extended trial would not be good for her health. He took the stand and explained what he'd done. Then, in front of Aaron's family, he once again reiterated that he was not sorry he'd killed Aaron, and that he only felt bad that her family was suffering, but described their pain as collateral damage. The sentence that Extian was handed down seems to have formed part of a plea agreement, but as with many things in the law, it would, in my opinion, sound like it had more bites than it actually did. The judge sentenced Extian to 30 years in prison, and as part of the sentence, said he should not be allowed parole. Now, it's certainly helpful that he pleaded guilty and Aaron's family did not have to go through a trial, but the no-parole thing is a bit of a red herring. Section 276B-1 of the Criminal Procedure Act empowers the courts to impose a non-parole period. However, that same section goes on to say that the non-parole period may not exceed two-thirds of the total sentence or 25 years, whichever is shorter. All of the resources I could find simply state that Extian was sentenced without the possibility of parole. And I do not have access to the judgments in this case, so I cannot say whether that was the totality of what the judge said in his sentencing or if that's just what people heard and reported. In reality, Extian should be eligible for parole at two-thirds of his sentence, which is 20 years. But, in Julian Janssen's book, he ends the chapter on Erin's murder by saying that Extian will be eligible for parole in 2022. Yeah, that's, that's this year. 13 years after he murdered Erin. And not even two-thirds of the way into his sentence. If someone has an explanation for that, I'd love to hear it. Ideally, Jacobus Extian should have stood trial and been handed down a life sentence for his crime. 
then at least he would have had to serve a minimum of 25 years and would have been under the auspices of, of the Department of Correctional Services for the rest of his life, which I personally feel is pretty much necessary. I do, however, understand that a trial would have been horrendous for all involved, and I'm sure Aaron's family just wanted to move on. To be fair, eligibility for parole doesn't guarantee anything. If Extian stands in front of a parole board and continues on with his claims that Aaron deserved to die, it's unlikely he'll get parole. But we know the current parole system places huge and unnecessary value on how well an offender has behaved in prison, and I have no doubt at all that Jakobus Extian, intelligent as he is, has been a model prisoner. Sadly, psychopathy is untreatable. It can be managed, of course. One can learn methods to reduce the negative behavior if one is so inclined. But something makes me think that Extian would not be so inclined. Either way, by 2039, when he is 53 years old, Extian's sentence will expire and he will be a free man and Erin will still be dead, and her killer will probably still believe she deserved it. Erin's dad talks about the sentence and says that in a sad irony, he and his daughter actually had a conversation about prison sentences in the months before she passed away. He quotes his daughter as saying, when you consider a prison sentence, you have to ask yourself, Quote, do you want revenge or do you want justice? End quote. Errol and Helen van Rensburg say that they are grateful that they got justice for Aaron. In the years since, they've spoken to so many families who've never had their day in court and probably never will. Extian at least had to admit his guilt and serve time in prison. And as far as they're concerned, the amount of time means very little. It will never be enough, because it will never bring Aaron back. Errol van Rensburg raises a hugely important point about his daughter's murder. He says, as horrific as Aaron's murder was, She's just one in a long line of women that died before her and who will die after her. He says that in his opinion, there is an attitude problem in this country among some men. When they see a woman they like, he says, even if that woman just greets them in a friendly way, suddenly they believe she must be lusting after them and now... They can just take what they want. Erin's friends say that her death changed their lives. One woman says that she now lives her life for Erin. She takes every opportunity, puts her all into everything, and savors every single moment, because Erin never got the chance to do so. I still cannot tell you why Erin's murder has gripped me so deeply. 
but I know it will not let me go for some time. Inspector Johann Nall, who was instrumental in bringing Exteon to justice, told Julian Janssen that the day after Erin's body was found, he woke up in the middle of the night with a start. He still cannot fully explain what he experienced that night, but he said that he saw Erin standing at the side of his bed. He said he was sweating profusely and felt that his face was on fire. Nell said that Erin had reached out and brushed her hand across his forehead, wiping the sweat from his skin, just as the forensics officer had so gently brushed the sand from hers. The hardened detective, who'd likely seen hundreds of deceased victims before Erin van Rensburg, said he felt like she'd come to say thank you. He'd never had such an experience before, and never has again. Erin van Rensburg was a force to be reckoned with. She was bright, funny, sweet and kind. She filled the hearts of all of those who loved her. And no matter what Extian says, she never deserved a second of what she endured at his hands. And I don't just mean the crime. I mean she didn't deserve for her no to be ignored. She didn't deserve to feel like she had to be nice to this guy who just refused to accept she wasn't interested. She deserved none of it. I briefly wondered if this case touched me so deeply because Extian was such an absolutely callous offender. But I don't really want to give him that much credit. I think my reaction to this case is all down to Erin. She found herself in a situation almost every single woman will find themselves in at some time in their lives. The object of unwanted attention. No matter what she did or how hard she tried to wrench herself out of his clutches, the offender just would not let go. She tried being nice about it. She tried playing hardball. She told people. They listened. But no one, not one single person, including Erin, could allow their minds to go to this place. This place where the offender may not just be a rude and nasty nuisance, but a cold, calculated predator who would stop at nothing to rectify what he saw as an imbalance. Erin van Rensburg, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 99, The Murder of Erin van Rensburg. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.